Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast for the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm Daniel Link. It's been a long time. It's been literally over a year, but hey, life has been busy, but I'm back now. New job, new calling, or whatever have you, and I've got time to record a podcast again. Yes, it has been that busy. And for this episode, uh, relaunch, new season, whatever it is, I'm happy to uh, invite on this premiere a dear old friend of mine. Uh, His name is Xander Harrington. We have known each other for at least a, not at least, but like a decade and a half now, all the way back from high school. And I'm very happy to have him on tonight. Xander, who are you? What do you do? What are you all about? Hi, Dad. I'm Dan's friend. And that, for this context, I shall remain Dan's pet friend. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I keep him in the attic. He does. He f- feeds me a bucket of fish heads a week. <laughs> it saved our marriage. Uh, <laughs> hello. Um, thanks for having me on, Dan. This is, is really exciting. And uh, you, y'all know me. Know what I do for a living. I don't. No. <laughs> My mom always asks me that, but I forget every time. <laughs> I uh, am employed. <laughs> I work in the, the great white blue collar tradition of shipping and receiving, but, and, but I am an Ernst writer. Uh, a wannabe writer, Dan? What do you want to say? We- uh, you're not wannabe. You've got something coming out you said later this month. Something to hawk. <laughs> <laughs> Poor choice of words on my part. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, recently I've um, always enjoyed writing. I'm a big genre fan. That's why I'm here today. And uh, I have coming down the pipe a short story uh, to be published from Castrum Press at the end of this month, uh, appearing in an anthology called Alien Days. Not capital Alien, not that acid spewing uh, franchise. Not a xenomorph. Not a xenomorph, no. But thanks for having me on, Dan. This is great. Well, I'm glad to ha- finally have you on. And tonight, we're the main subject we're talking about is one that's very near and dear to our heart. It has to do with Stephen King, which you and I have a Stephen King-based relationship almost going back to the beginnings of our friendship. And the particular item that has us on the show tonight is the new adaptation of Pet Cemetery, which... I definitely consider it to be one of King's best books. I know you hold it in some high regard as well. And uh, yeah, the new adaptation of it, which came out the other week, it was directed by Kevin Kulsh and Dennis Widmeyer, written by Jeff Bueller and uncredited David Kjaganich. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's the fellow who wrote the new Suspiria movie. Suspiria. Yes, Suspiria. <laughs> no, it's, it's Suspiria is fucking great i'll have to talk about that in another episode but yeah pet cemetery is would you say it is one of king's bleakest works i would absolutely say that and for a long time until recently i thought no other work was in the running or even second to it till uh was it 2015 revival that particular novel i do believe that was 2015 i i read that in a day revival yeah, I read that in like a few sittings. And it messed me up. <laughs> yeah, that's bleak. And I think they're kind of interesting, uh, almost companions, dealing with similar sort of uh, lofty subjects of the finality of death, but it's from two very different viewpoints. 
And it's kind of funny he would write something as incredibly bleak and pessimistic as Revival because King has been on record saying that he thought he went a little too far with Pet Cemetery. It wasn't something he was originally going to publish. It was basically he owed his publisher another novel that year and he had a manuscript tucked away. He's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll publish that one. <laughs> and then afterwards, oh, ooh, ah, kind of went too far with that one. Yeah, his, uh, even his wife, Tabitha, a novelist in her own right, and Peter Straub, too, I think they both said, it's Stephen. All right, maybe, <laughs> maybe a, little, a little sunshine. Ray is hope at the end. Just put that away. Put it away. Tuck it away. And put your bottles away as well, too. Yeah, it was probably that time of his life. Oh, that's so mean. Uh, <laughs> it's not mean. But he, Revival deals with, you know, this is a subject that he's dealt with, and he's very open and candid about yeah. it. Like, I wouldn't say that King is one for happy endings, but there's usually something bittersweet about his stuff. There's something resolved, something cathartic. Pet Cemetery is not one of those pet stories. Pet Cemetery is a story about as you said, death, but also loss and the grieving process and the kind of fear of being unable to deal with that grief, cling on to the past and hurting other people you love in the process. And something I've noticed over the years, I don't know, you said recently that it was, it's been a while since you've read it, but I listened to the really fantastic audiobook that just came out. Oh, maybe last year with read by uh, Michael C. Hall. That's a, Great choice of uh, narrator. Does a fantastic job with it. And uh, one of the things I realized uh, listening to it this this time around was uh, another thing that it's about in a lot of ways is some of the bullshit we tell ourselves. It's a lot about lies and the lies we kind of perpetrate to one another. And, you know, even the white lies that we tell our kids about death and how the way we sugarcoat it or we don't sugarcoat it. And that's something I really liked in this particular version was the way the adult and the children dealt with. Yeah, you said this particular version. This is the second adaptation of Pet Cemetery. The first came out in 1989. It was directed by Mary Lambert from a screenplay by Stephen King. I think at that time, he, was, he wanted these adaptations to stay very close to the book, especially in the aftermath of The Shining, which he is famously not a big fan of Stanley Kubrick's version. And no, he has every right not to be, because it is an altogether different beast. I agree with you. That is a story for another day. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but what's interesting with that is, uh, I think it's, it was his first time he took a crack at one of his novels. I think he had already he, he'd done Creepshow and maybe Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive. This might have been after that. Maximum <laughs> <laughs> Overdrive. <laughs> Hey, featuring the most uh, comic book accurate uh, Green Goblin to date in the <laughs> film. Probably the closest we'll ever get. Uh, yeah, the the Pet Cemetery movie from 1989, Year of Our Birth, actually. It's fine, but... It's a good movie. It's a solid movie. I like Mary Lambert. It's kind of... I thought she had a unique take on it. What else has she done? Uh, she... Back in her heyday was a major music video director. She did the the music video for Madonna's Like a Prayer. Oh. To work with the Ramones. That's you get your Ramones connection. <laughs> um, unfortunately, after that, after Pet Cemetery, her career kind of stalled because she went and made a really bad sequel to it. Oh, 
I think Eddie Furlong's in that one. Eddie Furlong before whatever happened, Eddie Furlong. The Dark Times. The Dark um, Times. Yeah, like, <laughs> I like that movie. I like half the cast in it. I think that Fred Gwynn, a.k.a. Herman Munster, is really good as Judd Crandall. It's just a little goofy. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it kind of goes off the rails with the introduction of the Child's Play Gage. Yes. <laughs> Anyways. I think it's pretty solid up until that point, but... <laughs> Uh, anyways, so what the hell is Pet Cemetery about? Uh, Xander, you lay it out. Pet Cemetery in true King fashion. Fashion. I was almost, almost going to say Kingian fashion, and then I think I just confused words. In true King fashion is about a family moving to idyllic Maine, his uh, home state, of course. Uh, in this case, we have a doctor, uh, Dr. Lewis Creed, his wife, Rachel, and their very adorable children. And as you do when you're you're looking for affordable housing for your family, you don't take into consideration the busy road <laughs> next to the lush property you just bought, and also the acres and acres of uh, potentially scary virgin land. And there's an old man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the old man, uh, Judd Crandall, who's longtime resident of the region. This time around, he's played by. He of Third Rock of the Sun fame, John Lithgow, who owns in this. I really like John Lithgow's Judd Crandall because he's just this genuinely friendly and plain speaking, cool old dude. I, I, I like that he's gruff. It's a contrast, nice contrast to uh, Fred Goy. He's a little rougher around the edges. He's, you know, his beard's kind of like tobacco stained. Yeah. He looks like a, he looks like a guy from Maine. Yes. Or, you know, someone, I read a review, uh, someone said he looks like a, a farmer out of an EC comic, <laughs> which is, you know, which this movie kind of alludes to in its ghoulish third act, I found. John Lithgow, soon starring in a new remake of Stephen King's The Lonesome Death of Jordy Varil. Uh, <laughs> Can I just say on the subject of John Lithgow, what an unappreciated character actor he is? Underappreciated character actor, underappreciated voice actor, underappreciated children's author. That's right. I just saw. Uh, yeah, I haven't. I have to tuck into one of those soon. I really need to see him and Jamie Lee Curtis collaborate on a book. I think that would be wicked. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, the Creeds in this case they're played by uh, Lewis is played by Jason Clark, an Australian actor who I will say he does a pretty solid American accent. I've usually seen him play Midwest characters or generally American characters. What what I seen him in recently um, was it Terminator Genesis? Oh dear lord! He was John Connor in that. Oh, he was too, and they killed him and turned into a robot or something. I would say spoilers, but who cares about Terminator Genesis? Skynet buried him in the in the robot cemetery. Like, yeah, it's really bad. Uh, no, but I've seen him in. A couple of things recently that I really enjoyed. Uh, he was in that Mudbound. It was a Netflix movie. Going back, Public Enemies. Yeah, you and I were introduced to him at the same time, I think, when we saw Public Enemies back in Brantford all those years ago. I like him as an actor. I think he's uh, yeah, he's got a solid presence. Oh, he was in uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. He was the main That's human right. character. Yeah, I like that. That's right. Uh, his wife, Rachel, is played by Amy Simetz, who, as a fan of indie horror movies, I... Love Amy Simons. She's great in Your Next. She's great in uh, one of Ty West's more recent films, The Sacrament. 
I know she's in Upstream Color, which I understand you are a big fan of. That's an oddball movie that I, I can't recommend enough. It's the sort of movie that people might see it and say, oh, nothing really happened in that. I'm like, no, but so many things happened all at once and it happened silently. <laughs> that is me trying to pitch Andre Tarkovsky movies to people. With the glacial pace? Yes, basically. So the Creeds have moved here from Boston. They're looking for quieter country life. And everything seems idyllic to start. They got this beautiful house, albeit one set too close to a busy, an unguarded busy road. They've got a nice new neighbor. Just this beautiful forested area all around for older daughter Ellie and toddler son Gage to grow up in. They got their cute cat church. The only thing that's kind of weird in the mouth is the aforementioned busy road and this creepy ass pet cemetery that of the title located ways back from their property that appears to be frequented by these creepy ass kids that wear animal masks and are really never seen again yeah the wicker man kids that don't really i think they just clung on to that for the marketing to be honest like it didn't it was nice it was like evocative enough imagery but it didn't really serve a purpose but Small quibble. Things like seem like pretty chill here in the new Creed property. Things start to go a bit sour though when a student at uh, Lewis's university, Victor Pascal, is killed in a car accident. He dies on Lewis's ER table, and in this supernatural moment, kind of gives him this warning from beyond the grave. Is the Jacob Marley moment? <laughs> yes, very Jacob Marley. Uh, and later that day, on Halloween, actually, uh, Lewis finds out that the family cat church has been run over, as expected, by a truck on the road. So Judd, against his better judgment, is like, let's bury him in the pet cemetery, but not the official community signed off on this pet cemetery. We're going to hop over this deadfall and go to this long abandoned Micmac burial ground. And yeah, Lewis, you dig a grave for church and build a care around it. Everything's just going to be fine. Please do not ask any questions. I'm just going to stand over here and smoke. <laughs> ask as few questions as you can, okay? Just go with this. I know this is treacherous. I know you just heard something immense and shaggy and slimy and growling walking among the trees as we came up here, but don't ask any questions, okay? <laughs> it's like, Lewis, are you familiar with the Wendigo? No. Okay, just ask him. <laughs> it's all going to come out of the wash, Lewis. You'll see. <laughs> and then the next day, we figure out the hook of the story is that things buried in the pet cemetery, specifically the Micmac burial ground, come back, but they don't come back quite the same. Like, church is alive again, but he's much more surly, much more pissed and violent. And like to the point where even Ellie's like, oh, hey, I'm glad my beloved cat came back, but also, hmm, hmm, hmm. Please don't let it in my room anymore. <laughs> At this point, it's just where we veer into soil territory because the real hook of Pet Cemetery is a massive spoiler. Whether you know the book or the original movie or you've seen the trailers for this, yeah, the crux of the story is doesn't come about till about halfway through, and it's it's a big one. It's a big turning point. Okay, so for the sake of people who want to enjoy this movie, but also want to go in fairly spoiler-free, 
what we're going to do is going to have a little section for spoilers. I will include relevant timestamps in the show notes, and it will be bookended by this audio clip from Marcus Nispel's 2003 remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know your kind. Nothing but cruelty and ridicule for my boy. So yeah, uh, just going straight to the heart of the matter. Kid fucking dies. <laughs> you most certainly don't want to go down that rut, and the chi- and a child makes a mistake of going down that rut. But in stark contrast to the original novel and the first adaptation, where the cute young toddler Gage is run over, it's the elder daughter Ellie this time around, and there have been hints of that in the one of the trailers leading up to the movie that I was. I would say kind of skeptical of at first, like, oh, why are they changing this aspect kind of arbitrarily? But I found out that I was a really big fan of this change because they actually, it was more than just an aesthetic change. They did stuff thematically with it. That really opened it up. Yeah. It's like the thing about little toddler Gage dying is that he's a toddler. He doesn't really have a concept of death or what's it like to die and come back. Ellie, though, is older. She was previously curious about death, and now she's being there and back again, a hobbit's tale. <laughs> Just, but like the golem side of the hobbit's tale, uh, Lewis, unable to deal with his grief, digs up Ellie, secrets her back to the house, just drugs Judd's drink to knock him out so he can't stop him. Plain old drugs his elderly neighbor in the form of John Lithgow. I don't know how anyone could think to even. He's a doctor. He knows how to get the dosages right. (laughs) So very right. (laughs) But yeah, uh, buries Ellie in the pet cemetery and she comes back. And this actress, I don't know how old she is. She seems to be less than 10. Her name is J.T. Lawrence. She owns this role and specifically this part of the movie just playing this unsettling just off-putting and weirdly wise beyond her years version of a kid that's just being beyond the veil and back and has been incredibly affected by the experience there's it kind of keeps it ambiguous as to whether or not this has just been the effects of death mentally on her or if like something has come back in her frame has taken her over. They kind of play with that a bit, and even it's ambiguous in the novel, but just something about her performance is just so quiet and understated and off-putting. It'll just be like a twitch of her right eye or just kind of like how dispassionately she talks to Lewis. Oh, I'm actually kind of, sorry, I'm actually reminded of Kyle MacLachlan as Evil Cooper in the new Twin Peaks. A little bit. I could see that. It's a disconnect. Yes. She's an incredibly mature and empathetic actress for her age. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And they did, they did something with, I don't know how they pulled it off. They did it with her eye where one's looking kind of over here. Ah. Kind of looking. Ah. Which is a little detail from the book. It specifically says that about the reanimated gauge. So there's a lot, there's a lot there that I, and yeah, I love those scenes of her coming back initially. Yeah. Cause uh, at this point, not only do they change which kid dies, they changed the whole structure of that final act in which in the novel, Rachel comes back and then reanimated Gage offs her almost immediately from what I recall. Yes. And our dear friend, Jen. Yeah. But here, like there's this extended 
sequence of scenes where Lewis is desperately trying to get them to play family, in spite of the fact that Rachel realized that there is something very wrong, not just beyond the fact that her daughter is dead, but she's standing right in front of her. And, oh, Amy Simons is so great in these sequences as well. That is an amazing reaction when Ellie walks up and hugs when hugs her. There's so many things going on on Amy Simons's face. You don't even know where to start. Like it changes from second to second. It is like first it's disgust and terror. And then it's she tries to go with it for a second and then it slips immediately. And it's just a roller coaster of emotions on her face. And it's, it's amazing. And uh Jason Clark as Lewis plays it really calibrated in contrast to the point, like you said, he's so far gone that that scene in the bed in particular, as he tries to fall asleep beside her, you could kind of just see it draining away the last vestiges of his sanity. And in that moment with Rachel, the pleading and the sort of trying to justify what he's done to her is really wrenching good stuff. Like I hug your daughter. Oh, hug your daughter. Oh. Yeah, and I wish they had stretched that, that those scenes a bit longer because after that point, like the pace of the third act really ramps up, but not in a great way. It's like, okay, we are going from point to point really fast here. Yeah. Like so fast, I basically skipped we've skipped over the part where reanimated Ellie kills Judd with a very painful looking scalpel through the Achilles tendon. And unlike <laughs> novel and uh, Herman Munster, <laughs> Judd Crandall, who just dies screaming. <laughs> Sean Lithgow, Judd Crandall is like, all right, kid, bring it. <laughs> you you want to do this? Let's fucking do this. I'm throwing down with you. I'm throwing down with a zombie little girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, bless, bless John Lithgow. God bless him. Uh, Herman Munster just yeah, kind of just. He goes down screaming at the hands of a toddler, but this one has some defiance to him. I really like gruff John Lithgow, John. He's fantastic. <sighs> but yeah, it feels like that third, the third act kind of has a case of it's over, really over accelerated, I found. Yeah, it's too bad because, like, for the most part, like, I really, really, really like this adaptation. My main quibbles are just kind of direction stuff. Like, I wouldn't have shot the scene that way, or I wouldn't have relied on jump scares in that way, though both you and I know they're kind of a necessary part of any big budget blockbuster horror movie. It's it's a prerequisite, unfortunately. And it's too bad, extra too bad, because there's just a lot of very nice, slow-paced tension building sequences in this. They get kind of spoiled by these boom moments. Like I probably spoiled things for the listener right there. <laughs> I've I really found the beginning of the movie quite I I really liked the pace and I liked that it took its time and it really dealt with the uh, like the domestic stuff in a really quiet subdued fashion but yeah by the end uh, you just you're trying to catch your breath and it really doesn't give you a chance to I do like alter it a bit further involving who kills who how things resolve but speaking of resolutions I will say they won me back again with how they end that movie because it ends on a significantly different note than the original novel. Arguably darker. (laughs) I'm just imagining just King sitting in the audience like, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Not even I went that far. (laughs) But at the same time, it, it goes far. But at the same time, I felt it kind of honored a sort of open ended ambiguity of dread to the end of the novel. 
we can kind of we kind of know what's going to happen as this course of events plays out in the new version, but there is it doesn't go too far with it. Yeah. Like all these issues considered, I still really like this adaptation. I do like it significantly more than the 1989 Mary Lambert version. I think I would agree. Yeah, and I'll have to reread the book again to see how it stacks up. Because if I'm going to be honest, I read the book exactly once. And I think the last time I read it, I was just starting university. So over a decade ago now. Worth doing. Soil of a man's huh? Blah, blah. I didn't <laughs> miss the accent. Yeah, no one tried to fake it. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Jason Clark was the only one who really came close to having New England accent a couple times. Really? In the in the pronunciation of his chowda. Then again, he he recently was Ted Kennedy, so it's not too surprising. <laughs> yes, just this extended sequence of uh, him and Judd Crandall debating the pronunciation of chowda. <laughs> <laughs> that ends our spoilery discussion, which we shall bookend once again with this clip from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Does anybody care about me and my boy? You know what I was just thinking of now, Xander? What's <laughs> that? So, I know while I've only read the novel once, I've seen the Mary Lambert Pet Cemetery at least three times. And I was watching it with you one time. On Halloween? On Halloween, when we noticed, like, the... <laughs> I can't even call it a blooper because it made it into the final version of the movie, but I want y'all to go to YouTube. I've included a link in the show notes. You can type in it yourself. It's called Lewis Creed Hits His Head Pet Cemetery. It's a scene from the movie in which Lewis, played then by Dale Midkiff, he jolts out of bed from a nightmare. He rolls off his bed and then just smacks his face, like smacks his cheekbone off the corner of an end table. Obliterated. He eats it. There's no way this could have been faked. <laughs> but... He not only does he roll with it, but he doesn't even reach for his face. He reaches for his back and goes, Oh, owie, owie. <laughs> it's like, it's like, look, Dale McKiff, we know you tried, but you've just kind of proven you're not a human being there. Maybe he was just trying to get a bump in his pay and he claimed it was a stunt. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how that works, but it's like, if this was a stunt, like if he actually faked this, he deserves to be on WWE, the <laughs> Kings of faking injuries. But I'm just going to stick with my longtime hell belief that Dale Midkiff is a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> he would have made a good one. He slap a pair of glasses on him. Like he's got the look. He's got the eighties hair. As far as I remember, I think he spends the majority of the original pet cemetery in a leather jacket, leather jacket, Screaming at the sky in slow motion. (laughs) I will say this. Even though everything went horribly off the rails by the end, the parents felt a little more responsible in this one to me compared to Dale Midkiff, who like trips and like barely doesn't even try to recover as he gets up to save Gage from the road. Like he just hits the grass and kind of (laughs) rolls around a bit. I'm sorry. I'm sure Dale Midkiff is a really nice guy and everything, but. Well, it's also, it's carrying over from the Lewis of the novel, who is just a tragic character, but also the dumbest man alive. I think you've joked before just about his repeated trips over the deadfall, just bringing things back to the pet cemetery. (laughs) The new movie subverts that. He only does it twice. And the last time things are brought over the deadfall to the burial ground, he has no part in it. Uh, So 
Congratulations, uh, writers Jeff Bueller and David Kaganich. Son of a bitch. David Kaganich? Oh, I should have looked this up beforehand. David Kajanich. I'm so sorry, sir. Your Suspiria script was excellent. But yeah, that's a change they made I can get on board with. There are a number of them I could get on board with. I think all around this is a really solid ad- adaptation. And it's like something you and I talk about. I think we talk about with The Haunting of Hill House and, a couple, and Annihilation and a couple other different things where it's loose adaptation is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm finding that I'm starting to dig almost in-name only adaptations a bit more recently. Because, yeah, Haunting of Hill House, Annihilation. Oh, there's another there that's of my tongue. Like, not even adapting the themes, just going wild with the source material. I guess it's true. Like, I've already seen or read the source material. Like, I don't need to see it again necessarily, unless, like, I felt like the original adaptation did wrong by it, which is, we'll have to get back to that one for another day because there's one that immediately comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> no, like, even that, with that all being said, this is still a fairly close adaptation. It just changes up the final act, basically, but then does interesting things with it. And I think that's what comes down to me. I don't mind if you change stuff in the source material. Just do interesting things with those changes. I felt this was closer in tone to the book. Yes. It had that same sense of like, oh God, what is even the point of all this bleakness? (laughs) (laughs) A futile bleakness. (laughs) Like you said, just bad decisions made by good people. And it really explores that in an interesting way too. That's actually my kind of favorite genre of horror, almost just well-intentioned people not thinking stuff through, making it even worse. On this podcast before, I've talked about how much I love It Comes at Night and about how that movie has no real villain to it or monster. It's just scared people giving into their fear. Yeah, and blowing the situation as much as anyone could blow a situation to the up degree. And that's kind of what happens here too. It's like, there's a couple of moments that Lewis has and even Rachel, some of the characters have to just own up to the truth or to own up to their own fears and things could have played out a little better. Just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is pet cemetery. Y'all should check that out. If you can deal with stuff like death, loss, grief, what those things do to us. <laughs> what else have you been uh, watching or reading or playing lately that of the horror variety? There's a couple uh, decent novels and short horror story collections I read recently. There's one from Valancourt Press called The Best Of. Just look at Valancourt Press or, or Valancourt Publishers under Amazon. And Michael McDowell. Have you ever read anything by Michael McDowell? No, the name doesn't even come to mind. The screenwriter of Beetlejuice and the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh wait, I heard this dude did a really good novel. A several. I have. I've only read the one, but by any indication, if it's as good as the one I read, and he was a, a really accomplished novelist in his own right. Uh, what's the title of it? Cold Moon Over Babylon. It's a really dark and, as you would expect, by the guy who wrote Beetlejuice, sort of darkly comic horror novel. Really worth checking out. Sort of Southern Gothic. I like my gothic Southern, so that's fine <laughs> by me. I was on Shudder the other night, the premier horror streaming service, and I watched an Austrian movie from 2014 called Goodnight Mommy. Have you heard of that one? 
I've heard the title. I have not seen it. It focuses on two twins. I don't think they're about 10 years old. These two twin boys in Austria whose mother returns from some type of facial surgery. She shows back up at the house and her face is covered in bandages and the kids detect something off about her. And they start to suspect that she isn't actually their mother. And just this growing sense of paranoia and this detached, dispassionate mother figure who's becoming increasingly abusive. You know what? Like, good analogy for it. Remember the Babadook, Xander? I sure do. How could I ever forget? What if the Babadook was dark? <laughs> what indeed? What if that was, yeah. What if that was, what if that was the case? But Dan, <laughs> isn't the Babadook like already a fairly dark story about coming to sympathize with an abusive parent? Well, it didn't go far enough. <laughs> for, for anyone who felt the Babadook pulled its punches too much, I have a wonderful alternative for you. Good night, mommy. Really does not pull its punches. Uh, <laughs> it takes a t- much like Pet Cemetery. It takes a turn in the second half, and without saying anything more, uh, mouth torture. Like a little bit of dental stuff in there, but also just bad things happening to somebody's mouth. Do we mean like marathon man level mouth torture or we could be on that? There's some marathon man level stuff in it. As, okay. All right. Let's, just, let's try it. Hey, hey, folks, just keep it safe. Just keep it safe. It'll <laughs> all be fine. Yeah. So do not watch that movie unless you have like a very strong stomach for torture stuff. I myself don't. I think if I'd known about that, I would have been a lot more trepidatious, I think is the word, or apprehensive about watching it. I just went in expecting an atmospheric psychological horror movie of the type that I have fallen deeply in love with over the last few years. But it goes some places in terms of gore. And I think I was chatting with a friend about it while watching the movie. I'm like, oh, this is pretty neat. I like the hook in this. And then halfway through, just going, hey, Maybe don't watch this. <laughs> it's like I am all about kind of like gently prodding people to push their personal boundaries when it comes to horror. Like, hey, maybe you should check out a thing that addresses the subject you're really scared of because it could be helpful for you. It could help you like face your fears and come to grips with them at least. But like, that's not a movie I want to drop on somebody. <laughs> you wouldn't recommend it to anyone like on a bright Saturday where there are options. To live one's life. I don't know. Bright Saturday, like, it's well lit. You have options for the rest of your day. Like, oh, I feel really bad about this, but I can have a good meal later on. I can spend some time with my partner. But, like, I've watched this late at night alone. I'm like, well, I've got no one to turn to but my own thoughts after this. Oh, well. (laughs) Here we are. I saw that Ghost Stories for the first time. Come again? Ghost Stories? Martin Freeman's in it? Oh, I've never heard of this before. Uh, it's, it's kind of a loose, loose anthology movie, but more in a connected sort of uh, like the way trick or treat that sort of. Okay, uh, who's it by? I have to check that out. Uh, it's a British movie. I, the name of the director escapes me at the moment. I do recall Mr. Martin Freeman being it. Ah, yes, he of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and previously of movies about small people with hairy feet. Uh, ghost stories. Yeah, it's, it's, that's uh, it was had some very. We talked about sorry, we were talking about jump scares. That had one that genuinely worked for me, but the whole movie wasn't littered with them. Okay, that's good. 
like a well-deserved one, like the one in uh, Haunting Hill House. You know the one I mean? Everybody who's seen that show knows this one. Knows the one, yeah. Because I th- as someone who sees basically every jump scare coming, I did not see that one coming. And the way the one in The Haunting of Hill House works is that there's no on-screen or even music indication that there's a jump scare coming like you can expect it coming in most horror movies because it happens literally in the middle, mid-sentence of an argument between two human characters. The thing is, jump scares work their best, not completely out of the blue. You have to have built attention building to some extent. But instead of building with on-screen cues to suggest a monster or ghost is coming, they built that tension through the character's argument. So you're on the edge of your seat, but less because you think there's something scary coming, but because it's these two sisters basically screaming at each other in a car. Yeah, it's riveting. <laughs> and then a ghost comes out and screams, and I think I nearly threw something across the room. But I think I nearly sh- shat myself <laughs> in amazement. It was fantastic. Well played, Mr. Flanagan. Well played. You're a good man, Charlie Flanagan. <laughs> That's not your first name. Your first name is Mike, but I want to make it your good man, Charlie Brown reference. <laughs> That's what the world needs, Dan. More Charlie Brown references. So, list of recommendations plus one very tepid recommendation for this episode. There is Pet Cemetery now in theaters. There is Stars Over Babylon? Cold Moon. Cold Moon Over Babylon by Michael McDowell. There is, there is Ghost Stories, an anthology film starring Martin Freeman, or at least one of those parts. Oh, and there's uh, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which I will have to discuss with you or someone else, at least at a later point. I need to get my thoughts out about Haunting of Hill House at some point, because it is very, very good. I've been thinking about rewatching it, and I, I was almost, almost felt indulgent going back to it so soon after seeing it. So I've decided to wait and I think I might just go back. So thank you all for listening this evening. This has been episode one. I'm not going to number it like for a new season, but yes, this is basically a premiere of a new season of outside of dream. I'm so back happy to have the time to be back doing this. I'm very happy to have you on Xander. Thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed this. And uh, you can check out his story altered later this month in what publication? Alien Days from Castrum Press. Yes, Castrum Press. I read over Altered Myself. It is très bon, so I hope you all read it when it comes out. Oh, you. Oh, you. Anyways. <laughs> so, good night, everybody. And just remember, if it gets too scary, you always have the power to press pause. I hope you have a nice one. <laughs> <laughs>